Good morning, everybody. I was just wondering whether um, <coughs> the adults will pay as close attention as the children did, because I haven't got one of Luke's stories, though. Well, we do come to the end of um, the book of 1 Peter, the fifth chapter, uh, and... Um, it's good to, to perhaps just take a step back and to think about um, why we're even looking at this book and how we've come to uh, verse 6 of 1 chapter 5. So if you recall, Peter um, wrote this to uh, a scattered set of believers who were facing difficulty and trial and trouble. And... Um, it makes me think about us here today because we just listened to this uh, children's story and it's so simple, isn't it? Uh, and one of the remarkable things about the gospel to me is that it is simple, but it's not simplistic. And it's simple so that a child can start to understand what Christ has done, but it deals with us with our real issues in life. And the people that uh, Peter was writing to were people that were suffering, that were troubled, people like yourself and like myself. And they were struggling, many of them, and probably for many of them, seemingly, um, this Christian life didn't seem to hold a lot of good for them. I don't know if you ever feel that way. I certainly do sometimes. But what Peter did is he wanted them to see the end in view. He wanted them to lift up their eyes and he wanted them and he wanted us to actually see that we have an inheritance. Our home is not here. Our home is in heaven. Now that seems <laughs> too heavenly minded to be of any earthly use. But it's not. The scriptures are full of this truth that we are just passing through this world. And if you feel somehow that your problems and difficulties and struggles are going to be dealt with here and now, then I've got news for you. And that's not the reality. Many of you have faced sickness some of it chronic, many of you have had financial reverses, many of you had depression and um, broken relationships. Uh, we live in a broken world. But God wants us to lift up our eyes. And right at the beginning of the book, he reminded us that we have an inheritance if we're believers in Jesus, he has bought for us a, a future and a hope. We have an inheritance that he has reserved for us. And it's not one like you may get from parents or people that <laughs> give you something here that fades uh, or that fails. It's an eternal inheritance. 
we have an eternal hope in Jesus. But the problem is that we're not ready for that inheritance yet. <laughs> Jesus wants to make us ready. And so when we look at the, the book of 1 Peter, it's a reminder to us that God has something better for us. The best is yet to be. But it's also dealing with us here and now how God is going to get us ready for the inheritance that he's prepared for us. And we use the word holiness and sanctification, God doing something in us to make us fit for the place that he's prepared for us. The wonderful thing is that he has prepared it and it's reserved, it's kept, the scripture says. It's kept by God. But also, he says, we are kept by the power of God through faith. And so, how does God get us ready? And a lot of what we've been reading is what God wants to do in our hearts and lives to get us ready for heaven and to give us the peace and the rest and the blessing, even in this life as he's doing that. And so we've read about um, the fact that he's building a holy temple. He wants to make us pure and right and good. And we've read about that. And then a, there's this thread running through it. There's this thread, and we're going to come to the end of that thread here in the verse 6. But there's this thread that runs through 1 Peter that holiness involves humility. Holiness involves humility. Now, we've been reading about being subject to or submitting to authorities. We've been reading about being submitting or being subject to one another. We've been reading about submitting to or sub being subject to our spouse, and particularly wives being subject to their husband. We, we don't like that word submission often, do we? We don't like that word being subject to. But that thread runs through the book of 1 Peter, being subject to. And let me say this, that phrase being subject to it's just the other side of the coin which has humility written on it. <laughs> That's what humility is. The first word in the reading that we had today was humble yourselves. There's no holiness without humility. That's why Peter's been emphasising this element of submitting to and being subject to. He knows our natural inclination is not like that. True? Our natural inclination is we want to be the captain of our souls. So every time we hear it, be subject to authority, well, if you're like me, you know, sometimes there's a bit of a, a cringe, you know. I don't want to be told what to do. Wives subject to your husband, whoa. 
people cringe at that, don't they? I don't want to be told what to do. Being subject to one another. Why should I subject myself to this man Paul over here? <laughs> He's shorter than I am. <laughs> but it's because this flesh that we still live with, because it's a reality, because Jesus knows the battle is on, that he needs to remind us. He needs to remind us constantly. And we come to this verse in verse 6 of 1 Peter chapter 5. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God. All these other submissions, all these other subjects too, all these others humble myself to all have to find their root in this. If I can't humble myself under the mighty hand of God, <laughs> how am I ever going to humble myself before another person? God is in heaven. He's sovereign. He rules over all. He's the creator of the ends of the earth. Our very lives, our very breath exists at God's will and choice. And according to his purpose. And yet we find it hard, don't we? We don't want to bow our knees to Jesus. In spite of who he is. In spite of how great he is. In spite of how awesome and powerful and strong he is. I don't want to humble myself under the mighty hand of God. Perhaps I'm not talking to you. Perhaps you can humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. I'm sure many have. But if you're like me, there are times when you resist God. And guess what? When you resist God, he resists you. And I'm afraid the one that's going to win is always going to be God. But we don't do it naturally. We're not inclined to do it. And yet here we have it. Humble yourselves. So what does it mean to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God? I guess we're talking about humility and being subject to. It's good to think about what it might mean. Now, it doesn't mean self-effacement. It doesn't mean denying some of the gifts or the abilities that God may have given you. It's not humble for a great surgeon to say, I don't really know anything about surgery. That would be stupid. <laughs> and I wouldn't go to that surgeon. <laughs> That's not humility. That might be modesty. Right? Humility, if... If I take Thomas Aquinas' word, humility means seeing ourselves as God sees us, knowing every good we have comes from him as a pure gift. It's seeing ourselves in the right place before God. C.S. Lewis wrote it this way, and I think 
others have mentioned this before. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. That's good. But let me tell you something about humility that's, that is perhaps a surprising thing. For most of us living today in this culture, uh, I think, although not everybody would practice it, they would say humility is a good thing. Or let me turn it around, they would say pride is a bad thing. And it is, it is. But here is one of those fascinating countercultural things in the New Testament, 1 Peter. When 1 Peter was written in the times of Rome, this is probably just before Nero came on the throne, just before the persecution got really bad, worse than it was even now, when he came on the throne, humility wasn't considered a positive thing. In fact, the, the Latin words and even the Greek term for humility was considered a negative term. Humility is a Christian virtue. It seems it was only when Christ came on the scene and portrayed the life of humility that the way we perceived it has changed. And so for the Greeks or the Romans, you wouldn't humble yourself. <laughs> the virtues were things like perhaps courage or honour or strength. But humbling yourself before others was not considered a positive thing. So now we have this sense and this word humility, which today we recognise is a good thing, although we don't necessarily practice it. And this verse says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Why? Why should I humble myself under the mighty hand of God? Well, there's a therefore there. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God. What's the therefore? therefore well last week Luke spoke about it and the last verse there that he talked about in verse 5 it says likewise you elders uh, sorry likewise you who are younger be subject to the elders yea all of you be clothed with humility why for God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble one of the reasons that we are to humble ourselves before God is because it's a no-win situation not to do it. <laughs> Maybe that sounds selfish. One reason certainly is that God commands it. He's actually said it. That's what we should do. That's part of us getting ready and fit for the inheritance that we have. There will not be proud people walking around in glory in heaven. There's no place in heaven for pride. He commanded it.
but also in this life, if you want to find yourself resisted by God, then you don't humble yourself before God. There's another reason that's perhaps implicit in this. You humble yourself under the mighty hand of God because he resists us, but also we humble ourselves as we see the person of Jesus Christ. See, I used to think that um, uh, some time, quite a time ago, that humility was a kind of a weakness. You know, all the strong leaders and uh, the people that succeeded were not humble people. They were people that were elevated. They were people that would say, I am the greatest. <laughs> For those that know what that alludes to. But when you look at the life of Jesus, that portrays what a humble person looked like. He wasn't necessarily retiring. He wasn't weak. He stood up for what was true. He could be very forthright. But there was a sense about his character that was lovely and attractive. And anyone who was humble and of a contrite heart found grace and loved to be in his presence and loved to hear him. Wouldn't it have been wonderful to walk with Jesus? We can today. So we're told here to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. But, you know, when we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, it also means that we'll humble ourselves before each other. When we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, part of that is humbling ourselves before each other. So what does that mean? What would that look like? What would it mean for you to humble yourselves under the hand of your wife or husband? <laughs> what would it mean for you to humble yourself before a friend or an older person or even a no younger person? What would it mean for me to humble myself under the children? Or would it be something that I should do? Well, there's a lovely scripture that has a commentary on this, I believe, and something that for me makes it as clear as crystal. And that's in Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians chapter 2, in verses 3 and 4 and 5 and 6, it says, but 3 and 4, it says... Let nothing done be done through strife or self-conceit. Let nothing be done through strife or seeking vain glory, seeking to elevate yourself. But in lowliness of mind, it's the same word, lowliness. <laughs> Humility is low. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem 
other as better than themselves. Now, we can all understand that. Let me rephrase it. Let each of us esteem the interests of others before the interests of ourselves. Now, don't you love speaking with someone who just wants to tell you about themselves <laughs> all the time? <laughs> Not great company. But don't you love speaking with someone who takes an interest in you? He wants to know about you and your circumstance. And look, I know there are people in this congregation that are like that, and they're a blessing. Because they have an interest in someone else other than an interest in themselves. And that's, that's practical humility. I can be humble before a child by taking an interest in the things of the child. I can get down on the floor with them. I won't now. <laughs> I can take an interest in them. I can humble myself before my spouse by taking an interest in my spouse. What he or she would like. What he or she would need. I can humble myself before a friend by taking an interest in what that friend needs. That's simple, isn't it? Jesus went about taking an interest in the things of others. Oh, so he did. He took such an interest in us that he gave himself for our sin. So it says, look not every man on his own things in Philippians chapter 2 but every man also on the things of others can you understand that I can understand that that's simple a child can understand it there's another element to this humility another way of looking at it, if you like. Another perspective that's tied up with that passage in Philippians chapter 2, and that is, when I take an interest in the things of others, I then become their servant. Just before the cross, this is so remarkable, really. Just before the cross, what were the disciples talking about? Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Just before the cross, what did James and John do? With a bit of help from mum. Lord, we would like you to have on your left hand and right hand a seat for us. Say to these two sons of mine, said mum. <laughs> Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. And the ten, when they heard it, were indignant. By the way, the ten were just as proud as the two. <laughs> Otherwise, they wouldn't have been indignant. 
If they had been humble, it wouldn't have been a problem that James and John were seeking the top position. That, that was God to deal with. But they were indignant. It says, and later on, this is in Matthew chapter 20, uh, from 20 to 28, but later on there's a phrase that Jesus says, but whoever would be first among you must be your slave or your servant. Even as the Son of Man, I get this, came not to be served, to be ministered to, but to serve and to give his life for many. Even as Jesus did that. So can you see the connection, you see? They were, they were dealing with pride. <laughs> they wanted to be number one. That's the opposite of humility. Humility, the word means lowly, lowliness of mind and Jesus deals with it in relationship to this aspect of serving others see it's all tied up in one bundle this Christ likeness to be lowly and humble of mind it's looking to the interests of others to be lowly and humble is to be considering others before myself. To be lowly and humble is looking not just to the things of myself but the things of others. And in doing that, in, in that package, if you like, goes a heart of service, a servanthood. Nobody here, that means me too, nobody here is humble who doesn't have a servant heart. You can't divorce the two. You can't say, I'm humble. Well, if you say I'm humble, that's a problem anyway. But, but you, you, you can't think that humility characterises your life if you don't serve others. That's really what Jesus said here. That's how he addressed the indignant, disciples and how he addressed James and John the way he dealt with it he said even the son of man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many so the question I ask myself and the question you need to ask yourselves is how am I serving others? Not as a means to gain merit. <laughs> For a believer, the inheritance is already secure. It's kept, it's reserved. But he wants to make us ready. And of course, the day is coming when we see him, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. He will transform us. But he is getting us ready. He wants us to be like Jesus. That's what he wants. He wants us to be like Jesus. And, and when we go to Philippians chapter 2, we see the rest of that passage where it tells us to let this mind, this mind of humility, 
be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. He humbled himself. He became obedient unto death, it says. And we love him for it. And we love a servant heart breaks through so many barriers. It's even hard for an enemy to resist someone who serves them. It's hard for the, the, the proud disciples sitting there not to be moved and touched when Jesus takes the towel and girds it and washes their feet. He humbled himself by making himself lower than the disciples. He did that. And when he says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that's what he's asking us to do. Yes, we humble ourselves under God. God is great and sovereign and powerful and wonderful. But in so much as you do it, to one of the least of these, you do it to me, Jesus said. When I serve another, I'm serving Jesus. When I humble myself under someone else, I'm humbling myself under the mighty hand of God. And then we go on to say, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now, God is going to exalt us at the proper time, it tells us there, in his timing. We like to be exalted quickly, <laughs> but it may not happen quickly. And as we do that, as we do that, we're able to cast our cares upon him. I know this verse gets quoted quite often. Cast your cares upon him, for he cares for you. That verse is not for the proud. I hope that's not me. That verse is not for the proud in heart. That verse is an extension of verse 6. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your cares upon him. As I humble myself under the mighty hand of God, I can cast my cares upon him. If I resist God, if I disobey God, which is resisting him, if I don't want to hear God, then you can cast as much as you like. <laughs> you won't experience the peace of God. Because the casting of the cares becomes possible. In fact, it makes sense, doesn't it? Like, if I'm not really humbling myself under, under God, I'm not going to believe he's going to deal with my hair cares anyway. When I become anxious, it's because I'm not submitting to God. 
Now, we like to think about when I become anxious, it's because I'm, uh, you know, I'm facing pressure. And life is difficult. And in a sense, there is that link. But you see, the deliverance from that has to be a transformation of a heart. And that's why, I'm sure that's why we're going through a lot of the trouble and the suffering. It takes time for God to transform. Not because God can't do it, but because we resist God. And we don't put ourselves under him. And so I don't trust him. And so I become anxious. And I don't learn what it is to cast my cares upon him. If, I, if I'm under God, then I can leave my cares with God. And I know he cares for me. And if I know he cares for me, it brings us back to submitting unto God. I can submit unto God because I know he's done everything for me. Or maybe I should say, when I submit unto God, it's an acknowledgement. <laughs> it's acknowledgement that he cares for me and he's working everything together for my good. Whenever I disobey God, and I do, I'm so thankful for his forgiveness. But whenever I do that, it's really a statement that I don't believe that God really cares for me. I, or as someone's put it, I don't believe that God is good. Because if he were good, why does he do that? If he were good, why is our daughter in the hospital at the moment, if God was good? If he were good, why don't I have enough money? And if he were good, why do I have this suffering and this pain and this anxiety? I haven't submitted myself under the beautiful and the loving hands of our Father. That doesn't mean it was going to be easy for these people. It was going to get harder. But it was going to do something in their souls that was going to lift their spirits and their hearts. And it was going to transform the way they lived. So let me finish off here. What about the rest of this passage? What about being sober-minded, watchful, because the devil prowls around. What's that got to do with it? Well, I, I relate that back to humbling myself under the mighty hand of God. As I humble myself under the mighty hand of God, I submit myself to the circumstances and the conflicts that he's allowed. And I recognise that there is a conflict. I recognise that I am weak and I need Christ and I need God to be empowering and enabling me. So the adversary, the devil, it says, prowls around and 
it links this to the suffering because it says we are to resist him firm in faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You see, in the context of this uh, book and this passage, it's saying that really that suffering is going to have one of two outcomes. Because the devil is going to use this suffering, and he does. He uses the suffering to turn us against God. He wants us to think that God isn't good. And he prowls around. And he's seeking to undermine our faith. And he's seeking us to get us into a place where we question God. And we doubt God. And so it says, watch out, beware, it's going to happen. So you have a choice and I have a choice. We can deal with the suffering that will come if it's not there already. And if you haven't suffered yet, cheer up, it'll come. Nobody misses out. We can, we can and we've seen this and you can see it. When a person goes through trouble, that person can either... Um, go down or go up in the spirit. That person can become bitter and angry and resentful and questioning. I'm sure you've seen it. Or that person can become a beautiful, transformed spirit. And in the midst of the suffering, shining out is the light of Jesus. Which one do you want to be? Which one do you want to be? The devil's prowling around. He's just waiting to catch us out. But here it says that we can resist him. To me, that means there is a choice as a believer now, God has to be working with me. <laughs> he does work in me. But if I'm looking under Jesus, if I'm spending time in his word, if I'm learning to think like he thinks, like Jesus in the wilderness, we will be able to resist the devil. <laughs> and... In James, it tells us associated with that resisting is a drawing near to God. In fact, he puts it in that order. He says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Resist the devil and he will flee. Friends, we have a choice. You're going to experience a trial like these, these exiles in 1 Peter were. Some worse, some better. It, for some, it's not going to go away in this life. For some, it just doesn't go away. It may get harder. So who do you want to be like? Who do you want to be like? Do you want to know the transforming and the wonderful, life-changing power of Jesus becoming evident? Because this is God's commitment to you. He wants to conform you to the image of his son. 
the trial of Jesus greater than any that we will experience brought out the wonder and the glory of God. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Jesus wasn't devastated by the trial. We're not Jesus. But in Christ, we can experience the same truth, the same transforming change that he will and does affect in our hearts and our lives if we draw near to God if we resist the devil and he will flee from us. And after we've suffered a while, the God of grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen and establish you. You might be persecuted. You might face financial reverses. Your health may fail. Your pain might be constant and chronic. You might be belittled. You might be ostracised by others. You might so feel the weight and the pressure and the difficulty of life that you are overwhelmed. But when my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. And Peter finishes this epistle with greetings. And isn't it wonderful, the greeting at the end? You wouldn't think this is a way to finish an epistle to suffering people. <laughs> but he leaves them with this word, peace to all of you who are in Christ. But you're being persecuted but you're suffering and life is hard, but peace, peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is a very special word for me. My name, my surname, Budamir, means be at peace. Peter's telling these people, be at peace. This peace and grace is the most used greeting in the New Testament epistles. Nearly always Paul starts his epistles or ends them with grace to you and peace. This epistle started, my grace and peace be multiplied to you. And Peter finishes it this way, peace to all of you who are in Christ. It's possible. It's possible. And for many of you, you've experienced it. And you do experience it. But it's only possible to those who humble themselves under the mighty hand of God. It's only for those who look not on their own things, but also on the things of others. It's only for those that start to take an interest and put other people's interests above our own. And we can experience the peace of Christ. We can experience the anxiety cast away. We can experience the love of God poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Let us pray.
Our Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that this is true. We're so grateful that everything that we've read in the book of 1 Peter, um, all the marks of holiness and the, the wonderful character of humility uh, and just the life-transforming um, uh, response to suffering was evident in our Saviour, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you've led the way. We thank you that we have a hope of eternity, but it's a hope that is in Jesus. And so we praise you for that and honour you and acknowledge that indeed our hope rests in you and will so do so through to eternity. Amen.